You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. Today I'm joined by Paul Doroshenko, also of Acumen Law Corporation in Vancouver, and uh, we have a really big announcement to talk about right off the bat today. Really? Yeah. Big announcement? Were you not paying attention to any of the news today? Oh, I was on the news today. I was (laughs) the news today. So then you know what the big announcement is. Big announcement with with the government is upping the driver risk premium and driver point premium. This at the same time, they're about to tie your insurance premiums to your driver's abstract. So, But I don't think they are. Like, I think what what David Eby has said today, and maybe I'm wrong. But I thought what he said today was that they're not going to increase the premiums or tie them to your abstract. Now they're just going to cash in on the so-called high-risk drivers. No, no. That's they're going to do right. both. No, they're doing both. It's oh still April 1st, 2019. <laughs> uh, it was on their website. I checked their website oh, today. Okay. And it's, right. it's, this is coming. So oh. you're going to have two different ways to pay now. If you uh, get a traffic ticket, um, one of the ones that triggers the driver risk premium, uh, mm-hmm. Then there set amounts for that, and the other ones come as a result of points on your driver's abstract, and both of those things are going to not only trigger the annual uh, fee that you've got to pay an invoice from the government, it's also going to affect your car insurance. So is this money, though, actually going to go to solving the financial crisis at ICBC, or do you think they're just going to throw it back into general revenue and ICBC is not going to see a penny of it? I have no idea where the driver risk premium has gone and the driver point premium has gone before. It's been, it's kind of vague. I don't know that it's gone to ICBC or if it's gone to the government. You know, it's collected by ICBC, but uh, who's had it before? I don't know. And but I, I don't fines, know it's like be traffic before. ticket fines you get are collected by ICBC, but they don't go back to ICBC. Yeah, well, that's why I think this is maybe something that doesn't go to ICBC. But I mean, the the, the more interesting thing to me The funniest thing about this is that they introduced driver risk premium and driver point premium because your insurance premiums were not tied to your driver's abstract. And they didn't want to do that, my understanding is, because they didn't want to change and upgrade their software. (laughs) So they put this provision in, which people thought was weird. But then, you know, you could say, well, you know, you're not paying higher insurance premiums because of your driver's bad driving records. So, you know, what the heck? They should be able to charge you this way. Well, now they're going to double dip, which is something that we don't see in any other province. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's all part of the same trend that we see consistently in this province. And it doesn't matter who the government is. And that's tax drivers if you can't afford to run your government effectively. Am I, I, am I, I cynical? I, I, I think that's cynical. I actually, <laughs> this is the thing. Okay. First of all, insurance costs a lot. It's expensive. Uh-huh. Uh, I, people I having cars on the road. Insurance. Yeah. People having cars on the road is expensive. Um, you have to have cars on the road because, frankly, the economy is, much of it is driven by people being able to get where they need to go mm-hmm. relatively quickly during the day and get things done and be productive. Um, you know, the, the problem is maybe that we've been supplementing it a lot uh, with other um you know, tax revenue and things like that. We do supplement roads or create, you know, paid yeah. for by the taxpayer. And as I understand it, we pay the least amount for insurance in British Columbia compared to the rest of the country. No. Well, I, th- no. I saw figures. No. You saw you BC saw figures. versus Alberta. Yeah. You, you know, I... I well, I don't I, know. Look, this is what the problem with social media is it feeds you the information you want and reinforces your ideas. So my well, cynicism about government and driving. The big insurance companies in Ontario would have you think that you're paying much, much more than you would had they, you know, if they were allowed to come in here and set up shop. Uh, okay. You know, but remember, ICBC does a lot of things that those insurance companies don't do. ICBC does all sorts of, of uh, road safety investigations. ICBC handles all of the all of the uh, licensing and and all sorts of other road management. ICBC uh, conducts investigations on on road safety issues around the province and sponsors 
uh, road safety initiative. It so, works with government to collect all sorts of back fines and fees because you can't reinstate your driver's license if it expires, if you owe child support, or if you owe from some other, I don't know, back tax things, like all sorts of stuff. They can just cancel your license. But I want to get back to this point right. that you said, and that was, is this like just suggesting this is a cynical tax grab and the cost and everything. I am and, cynical. Okay. Well, yeah, I know. I mean, There's a judgment calling me cynical. This is That's true. The uh, Was that actually in the judgment? It was, was in that, the yeah. judgment, yes. Well, cynical you, inferences. You are fairly cynical. But in any event, the um, the, the I'm going to lose my train of thought Sorry. talking about how cynical you can be. Um, no, the point is that uh, it, it costs a lot of money. And, and ICBC, to give them credit, generally speaking, pays people out for their injuries in claims. And I've dealt with private insurance companies in Alberta, uh, and as a lawyer, I've dealt with them in other provinces. And I know you're shaking your head, Kyla, but they do everything, everything, everything to not pay. It's like, you know, they're not there when the day comes that you need your insurance. And when ICBC uh, is called upon, they actually pay out Fairly no, reasonably no, no. well. Did you listen to the podcast with Roy from last week about ICBC breaches? It's they a try, small number. It's I know, a small but they, number. they get I listened you to, to that talk. podcast. I learned a lot. He was saying they get you to talk and they get you to say one thing wrong and then they breach you for a false statement. Yes, and I think I learned a lot from that one. And uh, the interesting thing I learned about that is uh, <laughs> tied back to the investigation of Trump and the transition team and the Russian uh, probe because if you look at Robert Mueller and you look at the people who have been charged so far, none of them have been, been charged with conspiring with the Russians. No. They probably all did, but in order to get that evidence, maybe you've got to get that Russian to testify. But they have been, there's a number of people who have been charged and pled guilty, convicted, uh, of lying to uh, Mueller, Mueller, Mueller and his team. So it's the same thing that ICBC does. Basically, it's very easy. It's Al Capone. It's well, he, he's investigating like Al Capone is what no, it's like it's like Al Capone, where if you can't get him for all the actual crimes he committed, get him for the tax fraud. Well, yeah, okay, sure. I, but in this case, it's getting them for making the false statement. Making the false statement is easy, you've got two different versions of events that the person said, you can cross examine them on that. They've lied to the FBI. You've lied to ICBC. ICBC, it's, a, it's their dream. But my, the point is, yes, they deny claims so that are valid claims. I, I get that. But if you are injured, uh, for the most part, they will try and expedite paying it out. And they will try and settle them out. And they're not as difficult to deal with as some private insurance companies. So, uh, you know, I, I when I moved here, I hated ICBC. Uh, I moved here from Alberta, the land of the free. And I still feel that I'm... <laughs> I'm <laughs> I still feel that I'm I'm separated from my homeland, uh, but um, the reality is that ICBC, you know, the, it's got its problems, obviously. But you know, baby bathwater, I wouldn't throw the whole thing out. But back to this double dipping thing. Okay. You know, is it fair? People ask me today, can they do this? Well, of course they the can do it. It's they the can government. Do whatever they they want. can pass a piece of legislation to do this. And and good luck constitutionally challenging it because is it. Technically, does it engage the Constitution, or is it just the administration of a licensing scheme, which sort of falls outside that? I don't think there's any constitutional argument. And, you know, we a, a prosecutor asked me about this about 10 years ago. You should take this on. You should run a constitutional challenge. That was long before the IRP scheme. And uh, at the time, I thought, you know, I don't think that there's a, uh, there's a hope in hell of running a constitutional challenge. But the thing that gets me about it, and this is what I was actually thankfully in the global story today. This is the one thing that they that they covered of my, you know, 15-minute interview. That <laughs> they, they always use just a Flip it down to tiny seconds. little yep. few seconds. But uh, the one thing they covered is the unfairness of it, that you get the ticket, you get a, a ticket for distracted driving or excessive speed mm-hmm. or something like that, and it's $368. And you phone our office and, you know, to fight it is going to cost a lot more than $368. We'll get to the, yeah. the ultimate point here. Um, well, I know where you're going. Yeah, of course. But they don't disclose to you that you're going to have to pay driver risk premium. They don't disclose to you that you're likely to lose your license uh, when the conviction is registered. And it's not just one driver risk premium. It's every year for three years. Yeah, yeah but it's annually assessed against you annually. Yeah. So the uh, And then, of course, it accumulates and it can accumulate with a driver point Get premium. Get one excess well. of a year for three years and one year you're going to be paying 1200 bucks. Yeah, well, all you need is a, a cell phone. A cell, cell phone, phone and an excessive. And an excessive and you're in big trouble. But 
They don't disclose any of that before you go pay that damn ticket. And then you find out when you get a letter, notice of intent to prohibit that we have talked about before in the Acumen Law uh, podcast, or you uh, you get a notice of intent to prohibit. They're telling you they're prohibiting you from driving if you can't explain to them why they shouldn't. Uh, and they usually will still uphold some prohibition. Uh, and uh, then you've got the driver uh, point premium or driver risk premium assessed. So they don't tell you any of those things when they give you the tickets of $368 and you send it in. That's the thing that I find the most unfair. And now people, they can, they can rely on the fact that it's on the website, right? Yeah. Oh, but you know what? I think that unfairness, I'm going to tell you my big constitutional law theory here. I think that unfairness is how it could technically be constitutionally challenged. Because I think the Alberta Court of Appeal judgment in the constitutional challenge that was done to their impaired driving provincial scheme that was successful... The reason it was successful is because the punishment, the administrative penalty, was directly tied to the commission of an offense. And so it made it a penalty for the offense. Traffic tickets are an offense. IRPs are not. So, you know, they can make their fines and their premiums and all that nonsense for IRPs. But here you have a punishment, essentially, directly tied to the commission of an offense. And they don't tell you about it at the time. So you're denied this procedural fairness in, in, in challenging it. And it uh, does have the specter of jail because the offense act says you could get six months jail. I think that there's an argument to be made there that maybe it is unconstitutional only insofar as they don't tell you about it and you don't know you're getting it and it is a punishment for the offense. I'm sure you just dream that up and it's not a bad argument, but I don't think it's a great <laughs> dream it argument. Up. I've been thinking about it all day. <laughs> okay, well, I uh, my view of that is that uh, it's so loose. easily easy to remedy. All the government has to do is point to, look, we've got it all over our website here. Yeah, but who goes to a website uh, when they get a ticket? Yeah. And, there's, uh, a, there's a decision from like the 1990s in the Court of Appeal that says that you can't go to traffic court, dispute a ticket, and then if you're unsuccessful in your dispute, get a higher fine or a, a, a higher penalty than what you were given notice of on the face of the ticket. And I think if you dovetail that with the Court of Appeal judgment, you can get there. All they have to do is change the words on the ticket. It's not that hard. They have electronic tickets now. I think there's lots of ways they could remedy it, um, which is a different issue. But I think the the constitutional argument there is not as strong as your argument would be to unwind the conviction, even if you paid the ticket. So I think if you paid the ticket on one of these things, and then you get your driver risk premium notice right, it's not after the fact, informed you, yeah, it was not an informed plea. They, there is authority though on informed pleas and driving prohibitions. Although a driving prohibition is not a certainty, it's a discretionary decision. But, but so the, I could see how that could be distinguishable. The point is putting it back into dispute would probably be the remedy as opposed to. Uh, as opposed to a constitutional finding uh, a violation, a charter violation, for example, and then and then uh, saying that uh, you know this legislation can't stand. Right. So I don't think the legislation is going to be struck. Uh, there could be some direction to the government that uh, you know it's could you have struck a on that ticket. Constitutional and- remedy in the sense of the informations must always state certain certain things. You know, I think it's as easy as the police handing out a sheet of paper with yeah. every ticket uh, saying, please visit this website with respect to um, the penalties you're going to be the facing. penalties you're facing on top of the basic ticket and driver risk premium and driver point premium. If there are any RCMP or VPD or BC Association of Chiefs of Police Traffic Safety Committee members listening, you might want to think about that. I mean, it's very easy to do. And the other thing that, uh, you know, I suggested when I was on the global story, which, you know, I I don't know that it got on there. I haven't watched the story yet. I've only read it. But the... uh, I heard you on the radio. No, well, how did I sound? Not too bad? (laughs) Yeah, you sounded good. Um, The, uh, because I was winging it, I had about 30 seconds to prepare. She just told me and all I had to say was, oh, really? 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 Holy, the squeeze is on. The squeeze um, is on. They should have put that on. I think they did. Anyway, the... Um, <laughs> I didn't hear it. Yeah, well, I repeated it five times when I realized, hey, that's not bad. Um, no, you know, every police officer who pulls somebody over has access to their driving history right there on their computer because they look it up all the time for things like IRPs. We know they've got it. They've told us that. Uh, you know, sometimes they pull it up in their car or they pull it up before they come to traffic court, but they've got it. 
And the point is, uh, you know, it wouldn't be difficult for the police to, you know, make some, to indicate to people or have something that they hand to people. This is what you're facing, uh, potential, you know, as a result of uh, a conviction for this offense. You should know that. Mm-hmm. So it, it, uh, there's, there's a couple ways they can remedy it. And, uh, I think, you know, in fairness, that is one thing that they really need to do. And I think, you know, our, I would be surprised if our attorney general or our solicitor general were aware that people who get these tickets are not informed about this. Uh, I don't, you know, they strike me as generally wanting to be fair people and they seem to be sort of proactive. Ah, well, I don't know. You're not feeling that way these days? I'm not feeling that way about Farnworth. I got nothing bad to say about David Eby, but I'm, you know, I've I've made my complaints about Mike Farnworth's inaction on certain issues very clear. I'm displeased about the inaction. I get you. I I I know that there's you know other considerations in government like we, we appeasing heard from cash uh, cash heat about yeah, it. So. Yeah, no, I know you, but uh, you're also appeasing all of these uh, you know high ranking government people who've been there for years mm-hmm. working on it. Uh, it's wrong. I'm not telling you it's right. You're looking away from me. No, I'm no, I'm, I'm, just right. I'm just looking away, dreaming of, of running for office and you're, shaking it all up from you're the inside. Gonna do no, that. God, you're no. never going to do that. No, not anyway, for me. <laughs> anyway, that's enough. We've talked. This is dead horse. It's actually not a dead horse because it's coming your way. Uh, it's it's yeah. the bulldozer coming your way. So I, the one thing I'm going to say in the end, this is I'm, it, it is a plug, uh, but it's not Call. necessarily a plug for us. Call the lawyer. If you've got a traffic ticket these days, do not, do not, do not just pay that ticket at a bare minimum. Call somebody who does traffic tickets. When I started uh, going to traffic court a uh, decade and a ways back, I was almost always the only lawyer there. When I go there now, uh, there's uh, sometimes there's various lawyers from my own office. There's lawyers <laughs> from other offices, you know, friends of ours and things like that. The uh, There's lots of lawyers now who are defending traffic tickets. So, uh, call a lawyer if you get a traffic ticket before you write that check or before those 30 days expire. Uh, and don't leave it till the 29th day, please. Yeah. And cell phones, excessive speeding tickets, and alcohol-related incidents on your record are what's going to trigger these driver risk premiums. And there's no indication yet about how much they're going to infect your, affect your car insurance. Oh, yeah, your, your insurance. We don't insurance. know that yet. And we know that they use historic your historic record so they're going to be looking at your record from two years ago to make decisions about they that is unconstitutional but they've done it before they'll do it again i know i know know. yeah somebody would have to you know unconstitutional or not it's not unconstitutional until a court says it is. yeah right government can do everything it, it wants and even if a court says it's unconstitutional if they pass legislation in good faith and it's a substantial change in the law you don't get a remedy anyway Sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. <laughs> Everything that's wonderful is what I feel when... Uh. Yeah, no. Sorry, there's a Section 1 exception to that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but in lighter news, I read the best driving law-related story today. Did you know, Paul Doroshenko, that it is an offense to fuck a car? You know, you told me this earlier today <laughs> just to mentally prepare me. And yeah, I kind of yeah. thought I should go look at that article. Uh, and, and read it or the vid- I don't <laughs> want to, I don't want to see the video, cams. but you're going to have to, you're going to have to explain it a little bit again because I haven't okay. read the article yeah. and I'm not quite sure. I mean, I can, I can visualize it, but uh-huh. please explain it to our listeners. So there was a man somewhere in the United States where it's, is, it's, it's, it's so often a man. It's always, <laughs> no, no. I mean, there's, there's sometimes, there's sometimes it's a woman who's really, really drunk and whatever. What, gear but, shift? Like, yeah, I know, okay. I know, but it's, okay. it's, it's just. This is not an X-rated podcast. Generally speaking. (laughs) All right. So there was a man somewhere in the United States who was encountered by police in uh, the middle of the night um, in flagrante with the tailpipe of his car. Um, They arrested him for a lewd act and he was just blotto and they suspected drugs and alcohol were involved. They took him back to the detachment um, and he blew 350 milligrams of alcohol and 100 milliliters of blood. And to put that in perspective for people, that's 80 is the legal limit. So he's like what, five, almost four and a half times the legal limit. And uh, there were drugs in his system and he was so out of it while he was boning the tailpipe, that they had to taser him to get him to stop. I want to know 
I mean, I, <laughs> I have so many questions. There's a lot of what questions. What car was it? There's, there's all sorts of questions I don't want answered. There's many questions I don't want to know. <laughs> Answers to to which uh, I, I don't need. Uh, but uh, really, from a legal perspective, how do they lawfully take his a breath sample? I mean, he doesn't have. He's care in and, care and control. He's not in care and control. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he's outside he is. fucking a tailpipe. I'm pretty sure that he would. What he'd be in possession of the key means to put the vehicle in motion and interacting with the fittings or equipment of the vehicle, Paul. That's the test. Yeah, I, I don't. Realistic think so. risk, since uh, Boudreaux is not an element of care and control. I don't think it'd be care and controls, and it may be an unlawful breath test. As a, they you probably know, but who had knows to test him because he was so out of it that they needed to know what was going on. I don't think so, but he might have just consented to a breath sample. I mean, they have different have, laws there. Yeah, right? he might have. He might have. I'm just, you know, I, it strikes me. Uh, strange that he would have been compelled to provide a breath sample under those circumstances. I mean. I, I can't believe that they tasered him. I'm still trying to figure out, I suppose the offense could be, uh, you know, like the equivalent of a committing an indecent act. Yeah, he was, um, well, charges were forwarded to the prosecutors for lewd act. Um, but as of yet, the state hasn't approved any charges I, I, against I, him. I would think that in order for it to be a lewd act, there would have, have to be to somebody intent. around and there would have to be some intent. Yeah. yeah, if you're so drunk and drugged up that you don't understand that you're having sex with a car and it's not a woman or a man or a trans person, but whatever, it's not a person, then, you know, is it really a lewd act? And what is the attraction to the car? I don't know. I There's some sexy cars out there. I find them all very dull. <laughs> um, Really, I mean, the new Rolls Royce and, SUV and uh, uh, early E-Type Jag is a lovely car and it's kind of erotic looking, but I don't, uh, I, I don't get it. I don't understand. No, but I, I, I don't understand. And I think of a dirty tailpipe, like, ugh. Maybe he's got one of those shiny chrome ones. It wouldn't stay shiny and chrome on the inside. It's a tailpipe after all. Anyway, uh, I hope he didn't suffer any injury. Uh, <laughs> Other than his pride, well, no, that's what I'm thinking. Like you know, if you're if you're there on the sharp edges of a tailpipe and you get tasered, and the other thing yeah. is, how can you even function at that level to get it up? Maybe Viagra was another one of those drugs. Well, yeah, I mean, he was on drugs, so who knows? But um, just I thought that that was maybe something lighter after the you know awful news about ICBC today. And is it is that lighter? I don't it, well, know. I, don't, I, you know, I just find it. The, the I visualize of, it and I'm disturbed by it. And the point of the podcast is to talk about how driving affects all different areas of the law. And I didn't think we'd be dealing with indecent act cases, but hey. So early on in the history of your podcast, yeah. here we are. <laughs> what is We've this, already, episode five? Uh, episode five, <laughs> boinking the tailpipe <laughs> of a uh, late model car. Okay. Um, I guess the big question then um, for everybody would be, does boinking the tailpipe of a late model car render you inadmissible to Canada if you do it in the United States? And my next guest, Agnes Tong from Acumen Law Corporation, is going to be talking to us about different driving-related convictions and how they can actually keep you from entering Canada or get you deported from Canada if they happen in Canada and you're not a citizen even if you're a permanent resident. So it's going to be very, very interesting stuff um, and definitely something you want to tune into. All right. And now joining me is Agnes Tong, also of Acumen Law Corporation. And Agnes is our resident expert who deals with immigration law. And it might not appear obvious at first blush, but driving law and immigration law actually intersect in some very interesting ways. The most interesting way, and I think the, the thing that we get the most calls about, and you might agree with this, Agnes, or maybe you'll disagree, is about Americans and American citizens who have DUI charges or impaired driving charges in the United States who want to come into Canada, and they encounter problems, right? Yes, uh, that's right, Kyla. Um, a lot of uh, the times we get uh, phone calls from uh, American citizens uh, who uh, have questions about their DUI conviction in the United States, uh, where uh, it could be very recent that they have received such a conviction and haven't uh, passed the uh, five-year or ten-year mark 
and they wish to come up to Canada for whatever reason. Sometimes it's for uh, business purposes where they work for a certain company and there's a meeting up here in Canada that, that they want to attend. And um, uh, the law in Canada is that um, uh, if you do have such a conviction in the United States, uh, it is treated as an indictable offense here in Canada. And um, even though it's a hybrid offense, uh, impaired driving, uh, because of the uh, inadmissibility sections in the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, um, a U.S. citizen with such a conviction can be barred from coming to Canada once an, uh, an officer at the border uh, on the Canadian side um, sees that uh, there is an issue here. And uh, one of the ways to get around... Well, I'm going to slow you down there because you've, you've unpacked a lot of information and we're, we've got people listening who want to understand this. So let's let's go back a little bit. You mentioned okay. some sections in the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. Do those refer specifically to impaired driving or are they um, are they more general? Uh, they are more general. Uh, they um, don't refer specifically to impaired driving, but uh, they refer to um, Something called like uh, committed an act or have been uh, or have been convicted of an offense uh, outside of Canada. That so like any offense, like I mean, a speeding ticket is an offense. Would that bar you entry into Canada if you weren't a citizen? So they look at um, what your offense is in the United States, and then uh, if there is an equivalent in Canada under federal law, federal criminal law, then uh, that could cause. An inadmissibility finding, but if it won't be found to be equal to anything in Canada under the uh, criminal law system, then uh, there won't be an, an an inadmissibility issue. Okay, so uh, I mean, taking it away from driving law for a second, it's a federal criminal offense to put graffiti on something. If you have a conviction for graffiti in the United States. Are you going to be barred entry under the inadmissibility criteria for Canada, or is it a little more complex than that? Well, if in the United States uh, you've been uh, convicted of such an offense, you know, putting graffiti on, on say, private property, um, that could be the equivalent in Canada as mischief under. Um, and uh, if that uh, is classified as a, as a hybrid offense here in Canada, then that could cause uh, you to become inadmissible. That is if you are a foreign national. Okay. Well, I mean, that's useful. Um, but there's a lot of driving offenses that a person could be convicted of or something that's equivalent to a driving offense. Like we have dangerous driving, you have flight from police, we have offenses for impaired driving, driving over the limit, refusing to provide a sample. Um, there's all these different driving-related offenses, but there's also similar provisions in our, our provincial statutes that create provincial offenses, not criminal offenses, for negligent driving or careless driving or even some provincial laws related to alcohol and driving. So how do border guards make that distinction when somebody from the U.S. is coming up and they have a pending DUI charge? That's right. And, um, you know, we don't expect that the border officers uh, in Canada are, you know, going to be um, as analytical when it comes to um, whether or not this charge falls under provincial law or whether it falls under federal law. Uh, that is why we often recommend that if um, somebody from the U.S. has such a conviction or such a charge, that uh, they provide the officers with an, a legal opinion letter that explains that this specific offense could be categorized under provincial law. Okay, I, I want to get to that in a second, but before that, I want to talk about sort of the different ways that you could have a uh, an impaired driving charge in the states and how differently that could be treated before I get into getting the opinion letter. Um, so, I mean, there's sort of three things that can happen. You can have a pending charge where you've been charged, but you haven't had your trial yet. You haven't been convicted. You haven't pled guilty. You could also have a um, charge that you've been convicted of and you have a 
criminal record in the United States for impaired driving. And then there's the third option where you could have pled it down to some type of a motor vehicle offense, like a reckless driving um, state offense, similar to a ticket here. Um, are those all treated differently by border guards or are they essentially treated the same? Um, from the uh, normal course of action, all of these things, uh, unless there is um, a, a very obvious difference, uh, they are, certain, in most occasions, I would believe, treated to be um, a potential for inadmissibility uh, when, when, a, when a border officer um, finds out that there has been uh, something like that uh, that's happened in the U.S. Uh, with the traveler. So um, that is, I, unfortunately, that is that is the reality. Okay, so um, you mentioned something called an opinion letter. What is that, and how can that help a person who's facing a DUI charge? Okay, so if um, somebody uh, in the U.S. has been convicted of a drunk driving charge, uh, a drunk driving offense, then the legal opinion letter can support the idea that had the offense occurred in Canada, that it would have been dealt with through provincial uh, administrative uh, provisions where um, a prohibition uh, against driving would have been issued. And um, because of that, it does not fall under the federal criminal law. And then, uh, therefore, this person should not be found inadmissible because uh, they are only uh, guilty of having com committed um, a provincial offense rather than a federal offense. And so um, that is something that can help the uh, traveler. We also uh, would advise that the officer at the border doesn't have to listen to this letter. It doesn't have, they don't have to uh, uh, comply with whatever suggestion we're making. And so, but it can support the traveler's um, uh, application for a temporary resident permit if they are required to uh, apply for one straight at the border because they're not allowed in. Okay, well, I, I'm, I'm a little confused because if you're charged with impaired driving in the U.S. and you're convicted of impaired driving, you have a trial and there they do jury trials and the jury comes back and says guilty, how can you get an opinion from a lawyer here that says that that finding of guilty in a trial that says they were impaired is is something that can can not apply as a federal criminal charge here. Is it only in cases where there's some type of a lesser disposition or where charges are pending, or is it in all cases? Well, certainly if um, the charge has been uh, amended to a lesser charge, it would um, be advantageous to mention in the letter. Uh, however, even if the person was um, convicted in the United States, there is still an argument to be made uh, that if the offense shouldn't have occurred in Canada, that it would still have been um, processed under the provincial regime because it just depends on the circumstances of the case. So would that mean that for like anybody wanting to enter British Columbia, you could make the argument that a first-time offender for an impaired driving offense who blew into a roadside breathalyzer would have been given a 90-day IRP, which the Supreme Court of Canada said isn't even an offense, and would have been processed under that provincial scheme. Is that arguable? That is arguable. Have you tried that with any cases? Um, you mean in terms of writing the legal opinion letter? Yeah. Have you tried that for anyone who's actually had a conviction and said, well, in BC, it wouldn't go this way? Yes, we have. Yes. Has it worked? Well, I've, you know, from some of the follow-ups from our, um, uh, you know, clients. clients. <laughs> That's what they're called, I guess. Clients. <laughs> from our clients, um, they, they've, you know, it just depends on what happened at the border, and, and they've said that uh, the officer, you know, didn't uh, mention or look into the situation, but for some, the opinion letter has been helpful. Have you ever had anyone who's had one of those opinion letters be subsequently turned away? I have not been, um, you know, I've not experienced that so far. So basically, 
everyone you've written so far has been able to come into Canada, regardless of the fact that they've had a DUI conviction? From the experiences that I have, uh, where I've worked on such a situation, um, it has been either it was helpful or the officer at the time didn't go into these uh, issues. Yeah, I mean, they don't always run your your stuff at the border. Sometimes they just wave you through. It's a busy weekend. (laughs) Yes, and, and, and I also want to add, Kyla, that I think that, you know, from, you know, the clients tell us that uh, having such a letter with them, just in case something does come up, helps them to feel a lot more, um, you know, calm and uh, going into the examination at the port of entry. And so sometimes that can help you when you are being uh, questioned at the border so that you don't give off the, you know, because they're, Officers are trained to watch the person they're interviewing. So you're, you're you worked for CBSA at yeah. one point in time, that's the Canadian Border Services Agency. So you worked for them. You know sort of the type of training that border guards get. That's right, yes. I was uh, with them when uh, they were still under the uh, CRA, Canada Revenue Agency. Okay, did you do like the interviews at the border? Did you stop people and be like, hey, you have a DUI conviction, you can't come into Canada? Uh, I was at the uh, international airport here in Vancouver, um, in Richmond, and um, we do all kinds of stuff. We do uh, uh, driving convictions, and we look for uh, criminality in terms of drugs as well. And so, yeah, we've been trained to watch for inconsistencies in the person's uh, risk profile. Well, that's really interesting that you mentioned criminality in terms of drugs, because a lot of people have been very nervous lately about Uh, the impending legalization of marijuana and administrative prohibitions for drug-impaired driving and how that might affect cross-border travel. Um, Do you see that being an issue? Do you see an administrative sanction for like a a 90-day prohibition for drug-impaired driving being a bar to admissibility for somebody who's a visitor to Canada and wants to come back? So for someone who is a visitor and wants to come back, um, I see it more as a problem for uh, Canadians who uh, want to go to the U.S. That's right. Right. Okay. But you, like you said, though, you're you're trained to look for drug stuff. When you're trained to look for that, are you trained to look at driving records and other things? Is that part of the sort of investigation of a potential? border crosser that you, I don't know what the <laughs> word is for it, but the potential border crosser that you look at? What do you, what do they look at? Well, um, you know, when I, when I was there, we were, we were trained, told that um, um, there are certain things that I'm not allowed to, even after I'm not no longer working for them, that we're not allowed uh, to. Sure, but you can tell me whether they look at your driving record. I mean, that's, it's, I, we could learn that by an FOI. It's so, publicly <laughs> available information. They have access to it. Well, so when I was at the uh, airport, uh, every traveler who comes through the uh, primary uh, investigation uh, you know, line, uh, they have their passport. We scan, they, they scan the passport. And it, you know, all of the information comes up. And if there's anything uh, that is worthy of further questioning, we look, you know, they would look at the person's uh, travel uh, arrangements and the schedule, their airline ticket. Is it, is it a one-way ticket? Is it a, you know, how long are they staying? Does it? Does can it, you see the airline ticket? You can ask for it. Oh, okay, right, right. And I mean, I know, like from my experience traveling into the U.S., that you have to plug in all of your information, your flight number, and all that. Um, what what about um, like driving records though? Does that come up automatically, or do you have to go into another level to get access to that? Um, so, my you know, when I was at the airport, um, we don't get to see the driving record. I guess However, it's not really relevant because nobody's yeah, driving. Nobody's driving. That's right. <laughs> but and, and we're only basically dealing with passports. However, uh, Canadian law enforcement officials, as well as the U.S. side of uh, police services or whatever, they do share information with each other. So um, if somebody, in a, if an American citizen has a conviction in the U.S., uh, that information could be shared with law enforcement, people at the border uh, in Canada. Um, this is something that goes on uh, you know, every day. The, the uh, RCMP uh, has information about um, certain people in, in Canada that it's uh, that they they can uh, 
that they can share with uh, law enforcement uh, officials at the border who work for the U.S. government. And so this is this type of information sharing is not new. So it is very it's very hard for a lawyer to say whether or not your um, pending charge uh, is something that is known to Canadian Canadian officials because we have no access uh, to such. Uh, oh, okay. So I always thought it was just that you would know um, it would be up in the system, but it, it would actually only be there if it actually gets reported. That's right. And do you know, do you have any knowledge of, like, who does the reporting? Is it different for every state? Is their policies different based on the state? No, I don't know if um, there are different policies in the states, but uh, uh, it's definitely definitely something that um, – you would have to get access to information from, and, and that would have to come from uh, the client, the American client, who uh, might be able to ask the um, judicial uh, administrative uh, office in, in the U.S. about whether or not this information gets shared automatically uh, with um, you know, at the border. Okay, well... That's really interesting information for people who are wanting to enter Canada. But what about people who are already in Canada who get impaired driving charges? If you're here on a work permit or a study permit, you're not a permanent resident, and you get an impaired driving charge, do you get deported? What happens? Well, uh, they they won't get deported right away. I mean, if they um, have something in court that needs to be dealt with first, then uh, the uh, CBSA will deal with them after their uh, Canadian trial or whatever uh, matter in criminal court is completed, um, and they will issue you uh, that uh, removal order. It, it doesn't become a deportation order until a certain time has expired that you don't leave voluntarily. But they will know if you are a student or you are not a Canadian and you're in Canada and you've been uh, convicted or you've been, you know, just gotten in trouble with the law, uh, after that situation is done, uh, you can be sure that um, uh, the CBSA, Canadian uh, Border Services Agency, will have that knowledge. You work for them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I work for them. They were called Canada Customs. Oh, time. really? Okay, yeah. all right. But How long ago was that? That was like, oh, it was years ago. Was that before you became a lawyer? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I thought it was recently for some reason. No, but it's a few years ago. Okay. Yeah. All right. So if you have then um, this charge while you're in Canada, mm-hmm. um, is it the same? Is it sort of treated the same like it has to be a criminality? What if you get charged with impaired driving, but you plead it down to undue care and attention or you get an IRP? Mm-hmm. Do, do Does CBSA treat that the same as a criminal conviction, or if you get an IRP, do you sort of dodge a bullet? Mm, if you get an IRP, you would have dodged a bullet. Okay, so they can't they can't issue you a removal order for an IRP. That's right. Okay, and is that is that set out somewhere in law, or is that just policy? Um, it's not set out in the law explicitly, uh, so um, they they would be able to um, see that this person was not. Uh, criminally convicted. Right, or charged even with an offense. Right. Okay. What Does it become more complex when you have somebody who's got a criminal charge that's pled down to a motor vehicle offense? That would complicate things. If, if the motor vehicle offense is, is still within the uh, federal parameters. Okay, but so if you plead from impaired to dangerous driving and you get a discharge, does a discharge change anything? Does it have to be a criminal conviction with the criminal record? Um, the, the you know what it, the uh, law in terms of uh, the admissibility of foreign nationals is if the offense is something uh, if if it's a high like an indictable offense right. most hybrid offenses will be treated as. All of them will be treated as indictable. Dangerous and impaired. That's or, right. Uh, even if you get a uh, conditional discharge, the fact that that offense carries a maximum uh, punishment of 10 years could land you into the inadmissibility sphere. But if you are a permanent resident in Canada, 
Mm-hmm. And you receive such a conviction where your, you know, whatever criminal charge has been uh, amended to a lesser charge, but it's mm-hmm. still uh, still criminal. Yes, yeah, it, and it's still an offense that carries. A term of imprisonment. Yeah, well, let's just use the, you have an impaired driving charge and you plead to dangerous. Let's just use that example. Yeah. And then, um, and if the judge hands you down a sentence that is more than six months of imprisonment, and this is if you are a permanent resident of Canada, then you will not be able to make an appeal against your removal order if your sentence for such a charge or conviction is more than six months. Okay, let me let me see if I understood that. So you can't appeal your removal order if you're a permanent resident if you get a sentence that involves six months or more of jail. Mm-hmm. Um, what if you're a permanent resident and you're charged with impaired driving and you get three months jail? Mm-hmm. You're good to go you stay in Canada or do you still have to fight you still have to fight okay and um, what and do permanent residents get treated the same way as as people on like visitor visas like no no okay they, they don't get treated so if you get convicted of impaired driving and you get no jail as a permanent resident how does that affect your immigration status okay so um, the permanent resident will be issued a removal order that is just a standard uh, thing because uh, they have, you know, they become inadmissible based on uh, the inadmissibility, inadmissibility sections of the uh, Immigration Refugee Protection Act. And um, because their sentence is less than six months, they have the ability to appeal on humanitarian and compassionate grounds to have the removal order so, so basically, all you get is the opportunity to say, please don't send me back to wherever I came from. Right. There's some reason I need to stay in Canada. That's, yeah. that's really important. Yeah. Other than that, um, you know, it's really difficult to, um, it's, it's difficult not to be, uh, you know, not removed from Canada if you have no Canadian citizenship, if that's your status, your status is either a permanent resident or a visitor, um, then if you commit uh, a federal offense, you're you're going to be facing some sort of um, uh, removal. Uh, and it's more difficult to remove a permanent resident. The threshold is higher. Okay. Because of the whole fact that they're permanently, permanently resident? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I don't know, recent media reports seem to suggest that maybe people aren't very permanently resident here, <laughs> even though they have PR, but yeah. um, that's not a topic for driving law. <laughs> that's a topic for municipal law and housing prices and that's immigration right. law. And which is which is another yeah, very interesting area. That, that's a whole separate podcast in and of itself. I won't I won't take responsibility for doing that. <laughs> um, okay. So basically I guess what you're saying is if you get uh, any type of criminal driving related charge, dangerous driving, flight from police, impaired driving, driving over eighty or refusal to blow you're basically, if you're a permanent resident or not a citizen and you're convicted, you're basically fucked. Well, the permanent resident has a more of a leeway chance. Okay. of not right. getting F. That's right. Can but if you, you're a foreign national. So what sure. if you're what if you're in the process? What if you have your permanent residency? You're eligible to I don't know, take your citizenship exam and oath or do I don't I'm, I'm not familiar enough with immigration yeah. law to know what you need to do but to complete it so you become a Canadian citizen can you do that with a charge pending to try and you know slide under the door uh, that issue would you know immigration law when it comes to uh, these sorts of different uh, circumstances can arise uh, it, it, it is quite um, it could get it could get a little complicated and you really have to uh, that's not an answer <laughs> i know i know but like uh you would have to have uh, dealt with the um the inadmissibility part first uh it, it will okay if it comes so up, you can't you cannot you can't just go yeah. you know hop uh, yeah. on down take no. your citizenship oath and then not get deported no uh, 
However, um, those people who are permanent residents and who uh, whose permanent resident card has recently expired and uh, they have uh, been convicted of a driving impaired driving offense under federal law and who um, you know were handed a sentence of less than six months, they would still if you know if they applied to renew their permanent resident card, they would still get one. They would okay. still get one. Well, if you haven't made the application, if it had expired and you were, you know, like me with my Métis status card that expired like four years ago, <laughs> just, you know, dilly-dallying on sending in the renewal, um, what, like, would you be ineligible to do it at that point because you hadn't renewed it already before the charge happened? Uh, the, the renewal... Uh, of the permanent resident card um, would look more into how many days you right. have stayed in Canada. And if you comply with the requirements of the uh, uh, time periods of stay in Canada in order to be issued a permanent resident status, then if you comply with that, you would still have that renewal um, successful. But it, it wouldn't have anything to do with your Okay. All right. And then even if you get it renewed successfully, you end up convicted, you could get your, you're going to get your removal order and you're going to have to go through the whole appeal process. Okay. So basically, if you're not a citizen of Canada, something that you do wrong with your car could cause you some really significant penalties. I don't think a lot of people know that. I mean, most people think, oh, you know, if I get a drug trafficking conviction or if I murder somebody, yeah, that could get me kicked out of Canada. But I don't think people really realize how seriously the government treats driving offenses. Is there a reason for that? Like, why is impaired driving something that could theoretically happen to anyone or dangerous driving? Why is that treated so seriously in in the assessment? Why are driving offenses, and I don't know, maybe you can't answer this, but why are they not exempt? Oh, I mean, having it exempt would be um, absolutely, uh, you know, so much better for a lot of people. However, the objective of some of the, um, you know, purposes of the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act is to uh, keep Canada safe. Uh, for Canadians, um, to the public, public safety is one of the uh, concerns that it wants to maintain. Uh, and if you have a history of uh, driving offenses, uh, you would not be allowed into Canada if you are a foreign national. Uh, and if you are a permanent resident, then you really run the risk of being removed because you pose a danger to the public. Interesting. Well, I mean, I don't know if I agree with that, but there's a lot of things about what the government says and does that I don't agree with. So that's why I have this podcast, so I can express my opinion. Uh, Thank you so much, Agnes, for coming and sharing your insight. I think that was probably very eye-opening for a lot of people, and people are going to be turning to this to um, figure out what they need to do if they're facing impaired driving charges in the U.S. and they want to come into Canada or in Canada and they're not a citizen. Um, and if people need to get in touch with Agnes, they can contact us at Acumen Law. The phone number is 604-685-8889, and our website is acumenlaw.ca, vancouvercriminallaw.com, or you can contact me on my website, kylalee.ca. Okay, so that was Agnes Tong from Acumen Law Corporation. Very interesting information about uh, um, inadmissibility to Canada. And Paul, after all of that, I think one thing people might be wondering is, what are these comparable offenses? Like, if you have a DUI in the U.S. and you plead down to reckless driving, what does that mean? What does that compare to here? And I know you have so much knowledge of that. Yeah, I'm not. I don't know that I'm prepared to talk about it right now. Thanks for uh, for warning me. But no, the. uh, I mean, I've I've written these letters that uh, Agnes has uh, has explained there, and the, um, uh, you know, and and lawyers, many lawyers who know what they're doing in the states, and uh, I assume that they all know what they're doing. But the lawyers who do a significant amount of impaired driving work are are 
knowledgeable about the fact that a lot of convictions, like the equivalent of an 08 or the equivalent of a DUI impaired, uh, are going to render you inadmissible to Canada if you end up convicted of that. Uh, in the States, they don't view it as a big thing because it's a misdemeanor. Here, it's a summary offense. And it, and well, it's a hybrid offense. Oh, well, it's a hybrid offense, yeah, but it's the, uh, the you know, that's enough um, for Canadians to, to rule you inadmissible. But there are many offenses in the States that are something closer to, for example, the Motor Vehicle Act. Uh, and, you know, we see things like uh, uh, reckless driving uh, in the States. We don't have reckless driving in Canada. No. The closest thing we have may be dangerous driving or maybe careless driving. And when I write these letters uh, for people to carry with them when they're coming to the border, uh, I will usually explain all of those separate provisions and look at the evidence in their particular case and explain why they should be admissible why this would be properly classified as careless driving in British Columbia, driving without to care and attention. Right. And it's really important, I guess, then to know what facts were stipulated. That's the word they use in the U.S. What facts were stipulated as part of the plea? Yeah. I mean, the you can get the whole police report sometimes from the from the lawyer who handled the, the DUI case. Um, and you can find out what was what was alleged. Uh, and you more or less have to stick with either what was put into the court or what the police officers got in their police report. But the facts that were stipulated, yeah. And there's things like in California, they have something called a wet reckless, uh, which is hilarious. <laughs> it's like when you're throwing water balloons at people who are driving. Yeah. So you're, you're driving. I was for that once. You're driving. Yeah, well, and, and so you should So be. I should have, yeah. Uh, and uh, in any event, the, um, yeah, so some alcohol. Uh, not enough to say that you were impaired or that you were uh, that you were under the influence. Uh, I often think that I'm under the influence of alcohol most of the time because I'm usually thinking about having a drink. You're usually under after, the influence <laughs> after about six o'clock. I'm thinking about yeah, I could sure go for a drink. Um, the the uh, driving by the Great. liquor store. Hmm, I'd like to stop and oh no no no, I, I'm under the influence. Right. But the thankfully we don't use that term in, in Canada. But oh, the job uh, security if you can't. Uh, if you can't, uh, you know, make that out and they, they make out uh, something else as, you know, crappy driving yeah. and you consume some alcohol, well, that's not, uh, you know, that would never lead to a conviction in Canada. Crappy driving. But, I mean, circling way back to the beginning here, but a conviction for essentially the thing you would equivocate, equivalent, uh, the equivalent of reckless driving that you would argue in one of these letters would be driving without due care and attention, which is like a traffic ticket. Um, it is a traffic ticket. Circling back to the beginning of our discussion, isn't it interesting that there's no driver risk premium for driving without due care and attention, which kind of is one of the riskiest things you can do? I can think of good reasons for that. Uh, I can also think of good reasons. The, those same reasons, however, apply to the using an electronic device provision. So The spectrum? Uh, yep. The, uh, you know, you've got the uh, looking down and adjusting your stereo in circumstances where it's, uh, you know, your eyes should be glued to the road is driving without due care and attention. Mm-hmm. Shoulder checking at the wrong time. You may be driving and doing something that's driving, but that might be driving without due care and attention. I mean, the, the standard has been held to be very, very low. Uh, and, you know, we see these people who end up uh, charged with driving without due care and attention where there's a death. And, you know, but for the fact that there was a death, they probably wouldn't have been charged with anything because, you know, maybe they were just driving like the rest of us do. Yeah. And the fact of the accident, uh, you know, the charges involved approved the police. involved yeah. the police. And, you know, you've got a, a family uh, you know, suffering the the tremendous pain of, of a loss of a loved one. And they really want to see something happen in court and uh, pressure on the crown to charge somebody with driving uh driving without due care and attention at a bare minimum. You yeah, know, this was, is, I was just having this discussion with another lawyer a couple of days ago, phoned me to ask about a drive without due care case and could not believe when I was explaining to him that, yep, you take your eyes off the road for just a second and that's enough. Yeah, and sometimes you're, you know... He's like, well, you can't be expected to drive around with your eyes glued to the road the whole time. I'm like, but you kind of are. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really think that definition has been stretched to the limit sometimes as i was saying to put people in that category for the sake of getting that conviction for that for the sake of appeasing yeah. the aggrieved family so there, there's one case that I, you know i 
I, I know the one you're talking about. The stereo knob. The stereo knob, yeah. yeah, yeah which yeah. we all do. I mean, I did it probably yeah, five times on the way here. Yeah, I know. And I don't know that, you know, if I was the judge sitting on a on a case where there was a trial about that, I would have a real problem. I don't think I could find that as driving without due care and attention. Um, yeah, the whole due part is yeah. kind of, you know. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, you know. You, it's only you, the attention that's necessary. It's not, yeah, you're, you're not turning to look at your stereo at the moment that, uh, uh, you know, there's a, a car swerving right in front of you. At that point, you've got your eyes glued on the road. You, you, usually, if you're turning to reach the uh, the knob to turn your volume down on your stereo, it's because you have a right. space where you don't have to do that. So I, I guess, I you know, I think that that definition has been stretched. And as I say, it's been stretched to fulfill these pleas, mm-hmm. uh, guilty pleas, where the evidence wouldn't support anything else. And the guilty plea is there. You know, with the person pleading guilty, knowing full well that part of the reason they're there to plead guilty is to to assist the family of the deceased yeah. in dealing with the... Well, yeah. yesterday in Richmond, in the afternoon, that driver who left his lane and struck those cyclists, yeah. um, I think down by where all those pokey stops are on yeah, number yeah, five yeah. and Dyke, um, I think he walked out of court with a like a $1,700 fine and a one-year driving prohibition. And people were outraged. It was on the news. There were people there, um, like, angry about it. And I mean, I get they're sad, but, I mean... Well, that's not one, I think, where they were trying to lever it into that that drive without due care and attention But the cyclists weren't riding single file. Well, no, but I think it was clearly driving without due care and attention. He admitted that he was, like, falling asleep, and he had been at the casino for all night, and it wasn't an alcohol-related thing, but he was... He was terribly tired and, you know, I... I right, well, that motorcyclist then that was killed, um, that, who was that, sentenced that, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. And the driver just, for whatever reason, it could never be proven why, just went on the wrong side of the road for just a second. Yeah. And I yeah. mean, you know, I don't know, have we all been there a that little can bit? Be, that can be dangerous driving causing death, criminal negligence causing death, you know. Those, it could be. Those, those cases sort of are... If there was a marked departure. Start, starting to walk the line, yeah. The Supreme Court of Canada, I mean, they overturned that conviction of those individuals who didn't treat their son for meningitis because they said the jury instruction on criminal negligence causing death was really just a jury instruction that if their negligence caused the death that that was inherently criminal without requiring the marked departure standard. Yeah, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. In any event, the um, the uh, I, I often I am of the view that it would be nice if we had something in between, something higher than a uh, driving without due care and attention, something slightly less than a dangerous driving. Uh, you know, maybe that is the reckless driving. I don't, we don't have to, you know, I don't know what term we come with it. Yeah. We, it, it would be nice you know, there if there was a middle ground. Aggravated, uh, driving without due care and attention or some. Non-criminal thing. dangerous driving. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with a mandatory driving prohibition of six months. And there months. you go. And that's what you could, could very easily justify the driver risk premium in those circumstances. You could, you could, because it was somebody who did something that was inherently risky. But I mean, you know. Who are we to lobby the government to create more offenses <laughs> when all we're doing is usually lobbying them to create fewer? Well, we're, we're not really we're lobbying. Not, we're not, no, we we're don't not. lobby. We're not no, lobbying. We're, we're, we're just here for fairness. Yeah, we are. And actually, you know, it would be fair. And I, I agree with you. And it's something I think about all the time. There should be something in between because the spectrum for a drive without due care is just way too broad. Yeah. Because eating a sandwich is driving without due care and attention. And, uh, and running somebody over because you're really too tired to be on the road is also driving without due care and attention. And it's the same range of fines and the same range of punishment and the same conviction on your driving record. Uh, I think it should be different. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's... Seemed... Have I sold you on that one? You, you, well, I, 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 I'm going to claim that I was already thinking it for months prior, but you're not going to believe me. Yeah, I've been thinking <laughs> it since... I've been thinking about that since... You've a, been thinking about it since about, you were born. Since about 2004. <laughs> about 2004 was when I we sat there one day and I thought... We probably talked about it at yeah, one point. Perhaps, <laughs> that's yeah. probably why I think I was thinking about it. Yeah, was perhaps, we had some conversation. Perhaps. Yeah, That's the problem. Our, our his own, you know, subjective historical revisionism in our brains... Um, like any humans, which I guess is why cross-examination is sometimes very effective. 
Yeah, you're exposing a problem with cross-examination there that uh, undermines the confidence in the justice system, and I'm not going to participate in your discussion. In any event, thank you, Kyla, for once again uh, inviting me to your show. I have more fun uh, on your podcast than I do uh, with the Acumen Law Corporation podcast. Because you do them all by yourself. No, I don't do them all by myself. I've done a couple of them by myself more as a story now. And yeah. I kind of like doing that. Our ones before well, were similar one... to this, but they we tried to be a little bit more structured. Uh, you know, it's a it's a learning experience doing this thing. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining me. And um, you're going to come back again in the future. We're going to talk about cannabis regulation. Yeah, well, and... we're going to talk about the BC cannabis regulation because uh, we're going to do a deep, deep dive into deep the BC cannabis into... le- legislation because this... Uh, this is going to be, uh, <laughs> you know, on the one hand, I was sitting there for the longest time thinking, wow, legalization of cannabis is going to uh, get rid of a lot of cannabis defense lawyers. And on the other hand, now I see that uh, the the extent of the fairly severe regulation that's been set up and the inconsistencies from province to province is going to create a quagmire. And we'll talk about that. All right. I look forward to it. And if you want to tune into the Acumen Law podcast, it's Justice Radio on uh, SoundCloud and iTunes. And you can contact us at Acumen Law at 604-685-8889 or VancouverCriminalLaw.com. And this has been another exciting episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. Thanks again for tuning in.